you know, I work on turf grasses, but I think, um, I think plants are amazing. And I think plants have the capacity to help us a lot with some of our current environmental challenges, some of our current climate challenges. And I just hope that people can think broadly about that, right? And and even apply it in the smallest way to their own lives. You know, even if they've got a little flower in a pot on their kitchen counter, Mm-hmm. I think I just want people to think about plants and the ways that they can help solve problems in our world. Oh, alrighty. So let's just get this started. Welcome back to the uh, Research Showcase podcast. And today we have Kelly Cope. If you want to introduce yourself, please. Sure. Sure. Well, thank you, Albert. I really appreciate the invitation. Um, I'm Kelly Cope, and I am a professor at Utah State University. And I also do a whole lot of extension or outreach work. But my area of work is water conservation and landscape water conservation, plant water use, irrigation technology, all those sorts of things. Oh, nice. nice. Yeah. So definitely more in, uh, in tune with nature and all that. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. I like it. Okay. So the project that you brought up that you wanted to uh, talk about, that was the, um, the turf grass drought tolerance and water use efficiency. So yeah. um, do you want to like give a quick little overview of that? Yeah, sure. So um, you live in California, I know. And yep, yep. Um, <laughs> I, of course, live in Utah, but we both live in the Colorado River Basin. And we are in an historic drought at the moment. Uh, and so there is a lot of attention being paid to different ways that we can conserve water. And one of the primary areas that uh, we can conserve water is with outdoor irrigation. And that can include both agricultural irrigation, but it also can include municipal or community or city irrigation. So um, just irrigation writ large, you know, that's where we can actually save a whole lot of water. And so especially in cities and more um, municipal type areas, there's a huge focus on reducing irrigation to landscapes. And many of our landscapes contain a whole lot of grass. And so I would ask you, I guess, have you heard about programs in California where they're suggesting that grass be removed? Um, I definitely have heard of that. And I've seen, um, I think in, like Las Vegas and uh, a lot of other like drier like states around even California where they like the model homes um, for like new communities they they would just automatically default to like artificial turf. So yeah, I have seen it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a huge emphasis on removing grasses from the landscape. And let me just be, be very clear that the research that I do is working with the actual living plant material. I'm not, working with the plastic stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm working with the living plant material and I have been for many, many years now. Um, And I guess I should maybe just to touch a little bit more on my background. I have a background in soil science, a background in hydrology. And it wasn't until later in my academic career that I started working on grasses. Um, But that's what I've spent my career working on since I got my first position, which was here at Utah State University, and I've been here ever since. But anyway, back to your question. So because there's this real trend movement um, toward removing grasses in the landscape, uh, we work a lot on turf grass water use quantifying how much water it actually requires to exist in our landscapes. And for me, part of that involves identifying the benefits that we get from grasses, because there's been, in my opinion, a knee-jerk reaction to grasses in the landscape. And a lot of water agencies and utilities 
have assumed, and I would argue mistakenly, that removing grasses from our landscapes is automatically going to result in water savings. And there has been very little attention paid to the potential for unintended negative consequences of removing grasses from the landscape. And so one part of the research that I conduct is looking at newly developed varieties of grasses. And there's a huge industry behind this, by the way. But there is a lot of effort being made to develop grasses that require much less water. And so the research project that I shared with you ahead of this podcast is about evaluating those varieties and determining just how much we can reduce the irrigation to those varieties while maintaining the environmental benefits that we get from them. So, for example, grasses, like any plant, sequester carbon, you know, and of course, climate change is one of the reasons that we're dealing with the drought we are now. And so anything that we can do to improve carbon sequestration is helpful. Um, Grasses also keep water on site. So they have a lot of benefits in terms of managing stormwater. I mean, I could go on and on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But so the research that I'm doing now is looking at these varieties and determining how little water they can take and still survive in our landscapes and provide not only the environmental benefits, but the functional benefits. So, you know, we've got kids and pets, or at least I do, that play out there. I play out there. Um, Mm -hmm. It does a lot of things in my landscape for me. And while I am super duper sensitive about the water that's required to maintain it, I'm also aware enough to know that I can maintain grasses in my landscape with a minimal amount of water and still have the benefits that I'd like to have. So maybe I'll pause there. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think there's also that. um, So you did state a lot of benefits, but there's also like a, I think like a psychology benefit from just like grass where you just feel, even if it's just green, Mm -hmm. you just feel like at peace and just feel good, you know? So I think there's also a lot more uh, to grass and just, um, I mean, there's also like, there's more to it. Oh, absolutely. You know, and there's actually been quite a few studies that show the benefits of a green landscape. The psychological benefits have been Mm -hmm. quantified, you know, and there are things out there, for example, um, hospitals like Mm -hmm. to have green landscapes around because patients actually heal more quickly when they have, you know, something beautiful to look at outside their window or perhaps walk in, you know, if they're mobile and they can get out and be in a little garden or a, you know, a park type setting that's been proven, you know, there are definite psychological benefits. Yeah. And I think it's also just uh, moving into bigger, like, what's it called? I think in like bigger cities, they have like these like vertical farming, you know, that's Mm -hmm. another thing. They're just trying to implement plants into like these big offices. So it just makes it like a better environment rather than that cubicle. Um, Yeah. yeah, And it's just, yeah, you get food from it. You get the, the health mental benefits of um, like the psychological, psychological benefits of having a plant around. So there's there's more, there's more to it than just uh, we're hippies and we're, we like grass. (laughs) There's a lot more to that, you know? So Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So, yeah, no, I like the project. Um, and in that video that you um, that you had on online, so you, you talked about like droughts, the impacts of droughts. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about um, like the current landscape of, of today? Yeah, sure. So um, here in the southwestern U.S. right now, we are, I think I mentioned we're in a historic drought mm-hmm. uh, and what I think very few people know is that, well, and especially if you're outside this area of the country, you may not know that the primary water source for this area is the Colorado River. And in 1922, the Colorado River compact was developed. And this is basically an agreement between all of the Colorado River Basin states about how much water they could each take from the river. But what we have learned since 1922 is that when they were deciding how much water each of the states could take, they were already grossly overestimating the amount of water the river had to offer. And so we've been working at a deficit from the get-go. 
So that's one thing. Um, and so then, you know, leading up to present day, you couple that with the fact that the river, <laughs> the river is not flowing as it used to. We never had as much as we thought we did. And now climate change is making things warmer. It's making our precipitation less predictable. And so all of those things together are creating this perfect storm where, you know, we've developed our society, our cities, our communities with one understanding of the water available, but it is absolutely not <laughs> the water that we have available. So now we're in a situation where we have certain amounts of water requirement just baked into our communities uh, and we just don't have it. And so now the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation is getting involved and they're saying, OK, all of you states in the Colorado River Basin, you don't have what you thought you did. And so we are going to be enforcing restrictions. So most recently, the biggest restrictions have been in the lower Colorado River Basin, in particular, Arizona. Um, I'm here in Utah. We're in the upper basin. But those restrictions have been imposed in the lower basin. And so everyone is looking at, all right, we don't have the water we thought we did. How are we going to move forward? Right. We all need water to drink, cook, bathe. You know, those I would call essential uses. Healthcare. Oh, those are essential uses. Mm -hmm. um, the production of agriculture, I would argue, is an essential use. Um, landscapes, however, you know, I work on grasses. A lot of folks would argue that that's not an essential use. However, you know, I mentioned unintended negative consequences. And if we start removing landscapes from around our homes and our structures, our um, schools, etc., then we start increasing the temperature, literally increasing the temperature around all of those structures. And something that I think doesn't get paid enough attention is that when that happens, if we start to increase cooling or air conditioning of those structures, there's actually water embedded in the energy that that requires because there's a lot of hydropower production in this part of the country. So it gets really complicated really quickly. And so there's that aspect of it. And then, like I mentioned, we lose some of the benefits I hadn't mentioned cooling, but that is one of the primary benefits of having green landscapes around our structures. Um, we lose the carbon sequestration. We lose the retention of stormwater on site, which is a particular benefit of grasses. So, you know, my argument is that we need to take a very careful and balanced approach. Not that things shouldn't change in some ways. I do think we have more grass than we actually need. But we need to be intentional and careful about what we retain and what we remove. Right now, what I see happening in the water world is that a whole lot of water utilities, water conservancy districts, et cetera, are assuming that by having people remove grass, they're going to automatically save water. But I can tell you that I've recently heard about some research out of California. One of the major, major water districts there has found that they are not achieving water conservation with their turf removal program. And they have at this point spent millions of millions of taxpayer dollars. So, you know, that's I'm I'm just urging a bit of caution as we all work to address the drought and the water conservation challenges that we have ahead. Mm. That's, that's a lot that is definitely yeah <laughs> sorry i could go <laughs> on and on <laughs> no it's cool they're, they're, yeah it's it is a big uh big problem that we're definitely trying to solve here yeah so huh so maybe i could talk more specifically about the research that i do because you know i mentioned that we do this trialing with newer varieties and we participate in several with several different organizations national organizations to do that trialing and so we literally have at our research farm small plots with different grasses and we impose drought on those grasses to see which ones perform the best so we've been doing that for gosh and this is something else that i think a lot of people don't realize People in the turfgrass industry have been working to improve the sustainability of grasses for literally decades, decades upon decades upon decades. And they have made incredible progress. So grasses that are available now, they don't require as much water. 
They don't require as much nutrients. They're better at, at resisting pests. So what all of that means is that you can have an attractive lawn that's functional, that you can still use, your kids can use, your pets can use, without all of the inputs that may have previously been required. You know, and sometimes I hear arguments like, well, you know, grasses require all these inputs and mowers are going to produce carbon. And so you're going to lose any carbon benefit. But the trend is actually towards electric care, you know, equipment. So I have an electric mower. Most people I know have an electric mower. There's a big trend in that. Um, even with larger landscapes like my university campus, they're looking at moving to electric equipment. So mm -hmm. that argument is to me, null and void. We're beyond that. So just a lot of advances have been made that I think are um, just increasing the viability of grasses in the landscape and enhancing some of those benefits that I talked about at the beginning. That's interesting that you uh, brought up like the year after year of like turf getting better because I don't yeah. think people really realize that. Um, so I don't know. Then you let's say the newest iPhone. It's literally <laughs> the same exact thing. They just have they just add a camera every single year. But OK, yeah, no. If you compare it from like what the f iPhone came out in 2007. And if you compare it to now, it's like, okay, that's that's a huge difference. Everything is definitely better. But if you compare grass from, or the turfs from, uh, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, it's like, okay, yeah, there's definitely uh, some updates over over the years, you know? like I love that. Yeah. I love that. That is a really <laughs> apt comparison. And I think completely appropriate. It has changed. It's like night and day. And the mm -hmm. other thing that people, it would, you know, just, and I, by the way, I told you earlier, I just came from a water conference in Las Vegas. I, I do a lot of traveling. I participate in a lot of different research groups. And my sense from particularly the water industry is that they have, and I don't want to be insulting. I'm not trying to be insulting, but just such little understanding of what grasses actually are and how many varieties there actually are. So what mm -hmm. I often say to people is, even if you just understand, like, let's just say tomatoes. Mm -hmm. If you go to the grocery store, right, and you go to buy a tomato, you probably can see at least three or four different kinds of tomatoes, right? Those are all a tomato, but there's just different varieties, okay? And grasses are exactly the same, except that there can literally, within one species, be hundreds of varieties. And each one of those varieties can have different water requirements, can look a little bit different, have a different color, a different texture, different pest resistance. And so, you know, the characterization of grasses as this sort of monolithic plant type that always looks the same and behaves the same is just factually inaccurate. And I'm on a bit of a mission to try to educate folks about that. You know, it's almost as though you could have a variety for your very specific situation that is literally built and designed for that very specific situation. So it's just, there are just so many options. And that's where I think the water industry is really falling short. And where I wish, and maybe, you know, I really hope that someone hears your podcast, <laughs> somebody in the water world, and gets in touch with somebody who knows something about these grasses, because there are people like me in every state in this country. Mm -hmm. And so the water industry has access to those folks and I hope they can take advantage of it. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely set it out. I'll find some water people and I'll send it to them. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Huh. Yeah, no, I like that. Um, that analogy of, of like a tomato, different varieties and how you can build a, uh, like a, like a product for a specific like area. So um we have, I don't know, LA, um, Southern California is definitely, I think they use more water because I'm from Northern California. I just have uh, that rivalry and, okay, let's just say SoCal, they use more water yep, so, yep. and they get more sunlight and yeah, yep. um, they're probably going to have a different like spec turf of probably uh, needing less water and having all of these different qualities rather than um a northern californian 
uh, would. So absolutely, absolutely. Well, and you, you know, you're hitting the nail on the head, right? You're talking about two very, very different climates in Northern and Southern California. Mm-hmm. And, and we can say that about the entire country as far as that goes. And so, you know, this, this research that I do, and by the way, not only me, I mean, there are folks like me, as I said, in just about every state doing similar types of work, you know, a lot of what we're doing is identifying those varieties that work best where we are mm-hmm. so that we can recommend it to the residents of our states. That's certainly what I'm doing. Yeah. So like stuff that works best. So you're trying to create like a good solution and there's no one size fits all, which is, it's definitely not that way for anything. So, okay. If we all made a shirt that was all one size, there's going to be a part of this demographic of it's going to be too small. It's going to be too big. So, and it's going to work for a majority, but it's not going to work for everybody. So I like how you guys are developing for a specific um, area. So I think that's, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, like different tomatoes. So I'm also a cook. I love cooking ah. and different tomatoes have different purposes. So you get like the heirloom tomatoes, the Roma tomatoes, um, the San Marzano tomatoes. So you have all of these different tomatoes. If you want a good pizza, you get the San Marzanos. Um, if you want to eat them fresh, you can get like the heirlooms and yep. the, the farmer's markets. And yep. and if you just want, I don't know, a good like salad you, know, you just chop up some romas. It's they all have their yes. specific purposes, and yeah, because most people just think it's yep, turf is turf, grass is grass. It's all the same, but no, it's 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 different. So it really is. It really is. And I I think I I often talk about tomatoes. I sometimes talk about roses, depending on the audience. But mm-hmm. I do find that pe- that makes sense to people, right? And. I just, you know, if I can accomplish anything, I hope it's that people can think a little bit more carefully about it and do a little, you know, maybe they listen to your podcast or maybe they talk to a scientist near them and they learn more about it because I think that grasses can actually be part of our solution. And currently they're being characterized as a big part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's been, you know, you're in, well, not now, but you've been in California and you know that a lot of the major water districts there have huge turf removal programs. They are literally spending billions of dollars to do it. But the fact of the matter is there has not been a whole lot of follow-up to see whether and if there was actually water savings associated. And I mentioned a water district that I won't name names yet because the report's not out, but I know the report is coming out and they are not finding the water savings. So, you know, I just, it's not like I'm saying turf, turf, turf all the time everywhere. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that, but I'm just saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. (laughs) <laughs> let's let's carefully consider what we're doing and maintain the benefits that we enjoy from grasses in the landscape. Yeah, no, it is because uh, like you said, it, it is a different, uh, things are changing like in the environment. I can definitely tell from, uh, and just from, so when I went to undergrad in Humboldt, I had a couple of friends who were locals there and they were mm-hmm. like, yep, the river definitely is not what it was when I was growing up here where the rain patterns are definitely different. So there's, there's definitely something going on and it, and it's, it's something we can't really ignore. So. Right. Absolutely. So we need to be intentional. And at the same time, we, we also can't really drag our feet either mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. climate change is not allowing that. I've heard, you know, you're talking about your friends in Humboldt. I've observed that here in Utah as well. In the 22 years I've lived here, precipitation patterns have changed significantly. And this is the same for the Sierras in California. Mm-hmm. You know, the snow amounts we used to get. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's so different. Yeah, it's so different. And so we've got to be responsive, but I'm all about avoiding those unintended negative consequences while we're being responsive. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good message. Like it's, I don't know, you hear all of these stories. I mean, winter is going to be coming up soon and there's, they're going to be like, yep, we're pumping, uh, pumping fake snow. It's, it's like, yeah, that's definitely not, not cool. It's not like, 
it's not natural. So no, it's and, not. And yeah. I live in a big, you know, Utah. We're a big. Oh ski, yeah, yeah. You guys right? are big ski, big ski. Uh, like yeah, probably best skiing in in America, probably. Well, we so. like to think so. Yeah. We like to think so, but I'll tell you, yeah, yeah, it's changing a lot. It's changing a lot. So we do have to, you know, we, we are facing a pretty stark reality where water is concerned and drought and, you know, our temperatures are increasing and we can almost see that marching northward in the state, same in California. Mm-hmm. Um, the positive side of that, you know, that I can relate to my research is that we can now grow grasses here in our state that we couldn't previously because it was too cold. And some of those are extremely efficient in terms of water use. So, you know, I don't like to say there are any real benefits to climate change, but Mm -hmm. that is an adaptation that we can make that can be helpful. Okay. That's, that's good to hear that we're here in some like forward progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, So I think we touched on like some of the big, bigger questions. So I put, why should people care about your research project? We definitely touched on that a little bit. Okay. But if you want to add some more stuff to uh, to that question. Yeah, I think people should care because of how it can affect their lives in very direct ways. Um, having grass in the landscape is something that is great for kids, for pets. It gets people out. You know, you've got your nature weeks, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um Landscapes, outdoor landscapes are sometimes the only contact people have with nature. You know, Mm -hmm. I actually, I just came back from a trip to Southern Utah to some of the national parks, and I'm very fortunate to be able to do that, but not everybody can travel and go do those things. And so their only contact with quote unquote nature might be their yard. (laughs) And so, you know, when we think about making huge changes to those areas, we want to think about how we use them. We definitely want to think about being efficient with the resources that we manage them with. And we also want to maintain the environmental benefits, or sometimes I call them ecosystem services that we get from those landscapes. So, you know, psychological benefits, but also the carbon sequestration, all of those things. We want to maintain those things. Those are the things that enhance our quality of life. Plants in our landscape, they do, you know, I've talked a lot about it already, but even things like just keeping dust down or Mm -hmm. um, maintaining soil, preventing soil from eroding. You know, soil erosion Mm -hmm. is actually a big issue with climate change. So, you know, maintaining even that one small aspect of nature, I think is critically important for all of us. Mm, Yeah, no, that's, that's a good reason why people should care. I think it's, I think it's good. I think it's good. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So I think, I think we can try this next question. Uh, So who can find this helpful? Which industries or groups can find this most beneficial. You did touch on like people, um, but okay, let's see. Let's let's talk about like um, maybe like bigger industries or companies yeah. or who can benefit from from this research. And um, yeah, I think a few. So um, who I would most like to reach are folks in the water industry. And when I'm saying water industry, I mean, I'm thinking very broadly. So this -hmm. would be your water utility that's probably run by your city. Um, It might be a larger entity like a water conservancy district. Those tend to be more on the wholesale side of water. Um, Those folks could all benefit. I think that anybody who works in the landscape industry, and so Mm -hmm. that's a huge industry too, of course. So, uh, um, nurseries, growers, um, parks and recreation folks. I work a lot with those kind of folks who are trying to manage the landscapes for individual cities, you know, folks who manage cemeteries, folks who manage sports fields, folks who, um, let's see, 
you know, there's actually, there's a huge sod industry out there. I don't know if you know about this, but, <laughs> you know, mm. another, you don't just plant grasses from seed. Some farmers actually grow it in the form of sod and it's literally cut from the ground and moved from one place to another. You know, that's another industry that I personally work with quite a bit in helping them decide, okay, what varieties of grass do we want to grow so that we have something great to sell our customers and our clientele? You know, that's another. Um, I personally work with the EPA on occasion, and they are aware of this research. And um, they actually have an entire program, the WaterSense program, that's really focused on helping the entire country save water. And one aspect of that program is identifying products that can reduce water use in a certain area by at least 30%. And these grasses that I work on do that. Now, the EPA has not certified any of those at this point, but I think that they're moving in that direction. So, you know, federal agencies, EPA, mm -hmm. uh, Bureau of Reclamation, um, you know, those sorts of folks. I think that this information can be useful to a lot of them in, in many different ways. Mm, wow, that is definitely helping a lot of people in a lot of industries. So it is, it is really important, but it's just... We, the, the fact that we just glaze over it and we yeah. don't even, like think about it. I think that's, that just blows my mind. Like it is actually like intertwined in our entire like life. And we just don't even like think about it because we're so busy doing other things. So right. Yeah. Just right. taking a step back and just seeing like, yeah. Cause you're, you're helping out all of these different um, industries, even, even sports. So yeah. Um, so like, I don't know, golf, I, I played golf. It's fun, but it's like, as like a business person, they definitely want to like have more uh, efficient grass. Like if they could use less water to water their fields, I think 100% of them would want to spend less money on, on yes. water. So yes. it's like, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, I don't know. It really benefits everybody. So you're yeah. absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, and I'm, you know, maybe on a little bit of a tangent here, but that's mm -hmm. another area. I think golf you know, that's another thing I hear in the water industry a lot is, ooh, golf, so bad, using so much water. But golf course superintendents who manage the golf courses, they're some of the most efficient water users out there because that's their livelihood. And they are mm -hmm. literally out there every single day of the week looking at it and making sure that it's healthy and efficient. And just as much as a lack of water can damage grass, too much water mm -hmm. can also damage grass. And so they're really balancing that. And I think they do a much better job of it than people give them credit for. But again, it's just, I think, I think it's just a lack of awareness. I really do. I don't think, you know, nobody's out there trying to be malicious about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think they just don't realize. Yeah. So I definitely want to like get it out there, put some more awareness out to this because it's, it really affects everything. So yeah, uh, I appreciate that. Um, farming and all that stuff, obviously, and yeah, yeah. So, huh? That's cool. I didn't really think about it in this, in this uh, like magnitude, but I'm I'm learning too. So I'm learning yeah. everybody else. So I like yeah. it. I like it. Good. Um, oh, I didn't even like think about the cemeteries and stuff. It's like so. I I like to go on this run. Um it like passes a cemetery and I didn't even really think about it. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that's definitely like grass and turf. I did not think about it. Think about so. this. Think about this. Think about the national mall. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's grass. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I happen to know, you know, I have colleagues in the, in, in the field who have helped with maintaining it, replacing it, improving it. But, you know, there we have the Washington Monument, for example, on one mm -hmm. end and this expanse of grass and water um, that just it's symbolic of our nation. Mm -hmm. It is symbolic of our nation. And I, you know, I haven't ever actually said that out loud before, Albert. <laughs> oh. but, but now that I'm thinking about it. It is. And it's been improved. This is something people won't realize, but that lawn has also been vastly improved over time. Yeah, no, because it, it's those are some really harsh conditions that they go through. Like, yes, it's uh, very cold in the yep. winters. It's 
super swampy and gross in the <laughs> at the summers and yep. the spring is just really nice so it goes through a lot of like all of these uh different uh seasons so it has to be like pretty top-notch grass and okay even the white house you don't want like bad grass out there you know this, no, this, you this, don't. Is, the, this is the top dog you know he, he, he demands the best exactly working out there so yeah. And think of, think of it this way, too. So kind of going back to the National Mall, there is not another plant material in this world. There is not that could be growing in that location and getting the foot traffic that it does mm-hmm. and survive. Grasses are so tough. They are literally the only plant material that will work in that application. So, you know, that's where I get more than a little bit of heartburn when they're characterized as all bad all the time and mm-hmm. no redeeming qualities whatsoever. It's just not true. Mm. Yeah, no, plant, uh, grass grass and turf is tough. It is turf tough. Turf is tough. That, that should be on a shirt. Turf is tough. So, <laughs> Oh, maybe I'm going to get, hey, that's a great idea. I'm going to get that shirt. I love it. Turf, turf is tough. Turf is tough. <laughs> So, yeah. Okay. So we, we, we figured out that it basically affects everybody and everything. So I like that. <laughs> Maybe um, I've been a little dramatic there, but no, I, no, it does. Like if you really <laughs> think about it, there's, there's a, uh, it plays a role in a lot of many, uh, a bunch of different industries. So, yes. Um, yes. yeah. Um, so the most applicable use for your findings and research, um, that's like the main takeaway. So I think you already touched a little bit about that, but if you want to add more to that, Yeah, I think the main things that I hope people take away uh, from this research is that they can drastically reduce their outdoor water use and irrigation by making good decisions about what types of grass they plant and utilize. And we just have, you know, again, it's not just me. I have colleagues literally all over the country and the world who are working on these things. And so we are well able to help people determine what works for them. Um, and, you know, in the U.S., I would encourage folks to be in touch with their land grant university. And every single state in the U.S. has one here in Utah. It's Utah State University. In California, it would be the University of California system. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just depending on where you are, it's a different institution. But one of our primary missions at a land grant institution is to work with the public to extend our research and information to the public to improve their lives. Literally, that is our mission. It just so happens that my part of that is helping with landscape water conservation and decisions around grasses and irrigation technologies. But that extends to all areas of living, truly economics, home, you know, cooking, canning, you name it. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, my area is this one. And we are literally throughout the country and able to provide that assistance. Yeah, that's kind of cool, like um, that you guys work with like directly with the people and the public. So yeah, and it's, and like these, um, I think that's another resource that uh, like the public doesn't realize that they have. You can ask for like, just help from these public universities and they, they kind of have to give you like all that help. Like yes. I need help with like, um, I yes. think I was watching this video. He wanted to make like, um, he wanted help on, I think a better like soil composition for growing like tomatoes. And then, he got in contact with his university and they were like, you need to buy this, 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 you like tend it like this, and then you'll get really good tomatoes. And it was all like for free because yeah. it was the mission of the university. So it's like, exactly. that's super cool. Exactly. That's exactly it. And that's one of the reasons, I mean, I went to land grant universities when I was in school. I've always worked at a land grant university. I just feel so strongly about the mission that we have um, and nothing against students. But I mm-hmm. much prefer working with the public, the industry, the cities and communities that I do. Um, people are genuinely hungry for the information and so appreciative. And I'm so happy mm-hmm. to help. I'm so happy to help. Nice. It's good to hear that we're, we're yeah. helping out the people. So, yeah. Okay. And yeah, this one's kind of a fun one. So if you could explain the project to a 10-year-old, uh, <laughs> how would you explain it? 
Oh, wow. Hmm. Let's see. Wow, that's an interesting question. How would I explain this to a 10-year-old? Well, you know, I guess I would talk about, do you know, 10-year-old little person? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sure you know. I'm sure you know that plants need water to grow. And you may also know that sometimes we don't have as much water as we might want to have. Sometimes we don't get as much rain as we might like. And so we irrigate those plants to help them grow. And what I do in my work is figure out how to use that water in the best way possible so that we still have water to drink and water to cook and water to take our bubble bath. Hmm. <laughs> I think that's how I do it. I think it's pretty good. It's just get straight to the point saying like, hey, yeah, um, we have a limited resource. And there's something that we enjoy and love and that's yeah. what gives us life. And yeah, so it's, yeah, I think it's good straight to the point too. So, yeah, um, you know, though, if it was a soccer playing kiddo, I definitely go with more of a sports. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah, sports ex explanation, you know, that field that you play soccer on, uh -huh. that's what we're working on and yeah. trying to help it be the best that it can be. And, uh, It's also better to like land if, if you land on um like like a real turf as for uh, artificial turf because like it just like your body doesn't like get scraped up by all the little oh. rubber pellets so it's just better on like your skin and I yeah. could I could go on at length about artificial turf but I don't think you want to talk about that I could go on forever yeah it's I don't know it, it gets kind of gross in the summer it gets stinky yeah I played on those fields it's not that One, so. No, I mean, the idea, just briefly, if I may, mm -hmm. the, the idea of that stuff being low to no maintenance is not correct. Mm -hmm. in, our is, climate, yeah. in our climate here, they actually have to water it to cool it down to make mm -hmm. it a playable surface. It gets so hot. Yeah. It doesn't cool like a natural plant would, you know, they get just so blazing hot. And then there are all the other environmental consequences, both with production and disposal of that mm -hmm. stuff that it's just rough. And, you know, let's just say in a collegiate sports setting, they have to treat it with, with anti, literally, they have to treat it with antibiotics because, hmm. you know, the scrapes you were talking about. Yeah. You can get like infantigo and all these other like nasty. Yeah. You uh, can get yeah. staph. In, yeah. yeah. Anyway. So antibiotics, anti-static water. I mean, it takes a lot. It takes a lot. So. Okay. Um, so speaking of a sports field, so Utah state, um, what kind of field do you guys play on? Cause you guys are D one for football. Yeah. Um, well, when I first got here, we had a natural grass field. Mm-hmm. But they had they didn't have a professional manager for the field. They they were using the landscape operations folks and nothing against them. They do mm -hmm. a brilliant job on our campus, but they are not sports field managers. And so yeah, yeah. so the university kind of caved into a lot of pressure from artificial turf companies and they went uh, to an artificial turf field about oh maybe 12 years ago. But I'll share a little story about it. I just talked about the heat. That, mm -hmm. that we get. So we've got an artificial turf football field, but one end of our stadium has a bank of glass. You know, there's some um, news and different things happening there. So that end of the field literally melted. Mm. <laughs> wow. Literally melted uh, from the heat. And the fact, you know, that again, it doesn't transpire like an actual plant. So the heat just built and built and built and it melted. right out wow. to the end zone. <laughs> that's that's interesting. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we have an artificial turf field which kind of hurts my heart, but that's that is what it is. Yeah. Okay, but hopefully we'll see some better things in the future, you know. So. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think there's a there's a trend in the NFL to go back to natural grass fields because of the injuries that are associated with artificial turf. And I hope that that starts to extend to college sports as well, but we'll okay. see. Cool. Yeah. We'll definitely just push for, for something better in the future. Yeah. Um, okay. This one, this one's kind of fun. So what got you excited about um, this type of research projects? 
Hmm. Well, I'm going to go back a little bit in my academic history. You know, before I got into grasses, I was working in production agriculture and that was great. You know, I felt really good about that work. But when I was going to do a PhD, um, the professor who recruited me said, do you want to work on this turf grass project? And I kind of looked at him like he had three heads, like, no way. I mean, who cares? <laughs> and he said, well, think of it this way. You know, if you want to work on something that has a huge impact, grasses in this country cover just a huge amount of land area. And so if you work on some aspect of their management, and at the time I was working more on water quality, you have the opportunity to really influence a whole lot of land area. And in, at that time, it was like reduce a whole lot of pollution. That's what I was working on. Mm -hmm. And so that that got my attention. And I guess I've always been interested in environmental issues. Um, but then, you know, that was back in Connecticut and I then moved to Utah where water quality, yes, is still an issue, but our bigger issue is water quantity at the moment. And so, um, the fact that we really have to be careful with our water here got me thinking about how much we could reduce irrigation to grasses. And so that really got me excited about doing this type of work, looking at these new varieties, these experimental varieties and determining exactly how low we can go with water applications. And, you know, I've mentioned a couple of different percentages, reducing irrigation by 30%, 40%. But honestly, there are some that we have worked with and are working with now that go even lower than that. And so, um, you know, just a huge amount of potential. And that amount of water use, by the way, makes them comparable to a lot of other plants in the landscape, trees, perennials, shrubs, etc. Um, so, you know, again, then they're just another plant in the landscape and we can still reap the benefits of them. Hmm. Okay. So just big, it, it was just a big part of your like academic and just life. So, yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, the other thing here is we've talked a little bit about land grant and public universities and how they work and how they support the citizens. Um, but that was a lot of the demand when I got here, that was a lot of the demand I had, you know, I work on grass, we need to reduce water use. Can you do this work? Absolutely. Absolutely. I can do this work. Hmm. So we try to be very responsive to what the public needs. Nice. Mm -hmm. Just helping people, just helping people one project at a time. So a yes. lot of people too. So let's try cool. it. Yeah. Um, so this one, this question is about like methodologies and, and tools. So what kind of, uh, methods or tools did you use for, um, this project? I know you have to monitor, um, like the plots of. Yeah. Yeah. So we do that in a few different ways. Um, you know, historically, one of the ways that we evaluated plots like this was just with a visual evaluation. So over time, if you practice enough, you can become very good at rating these plots for their quality. So how, you know, and the rating can be anywhere from one to nine, nine being the best it could possibly be, one being basically bare ground, dead grass. And so historically, that was a way that these grasses were evaluated under different conditions. So, you know, maybe we impose drought on these grasses. Today, we do more quantifiable evaluations of these grasses. So, for example, we have a very well-designed setup where we exclude all natural light. We literally have a box. We exclude all natural light. We have a digital camera in the top of that box. And so we, we take photographs of each of our plots. And then we use software to evaluate the photographs to determine the percentage of green cover that each of the plots has. And then you can compare that one to another and how they're responding to the experimental treatments. And I like that much better because even though visual ratings with the naked eye are, you know, they can be very effective. Mm -hmm. I personally want a more quantifiable <laughs> measurement um, that I think that's more defensible. It's certainly more defensible when you're trying to publish this work. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the kind of evaluation that we do. We also do um, other types of measurements. We look at um, 
something called a normalized, oh my gosh, the acronym NDVI, normalized difference vegetative index. And that's just another way to quantify greenness, but it's another instrument that we have that we can use. Um, we also can evaluate these, you know, I talked about temperature with artificial turf. We can use a handheld instrument to measure the temperature of the turf grass canopy because that also changes depending on how drought stressed the grass is. So we'll look at turf grass canopy temperature. We look at the percentage of green cover, which is kind of similar to NDVI. Um, what else can we look at? There are other ways to use digital or, you know, drone photography, for example, to get at some of the same types of measurements. So all sorts of things um, that we can look at. Mm -hmm. And then we can also very, very accurately measure the water use of the plots. And we use an instrument called a lysimeter where we're looking at not only the grass surface, but also the soil below it. And we're literally weighing the amount of water that is lost into the atmosphere from that system. So that can differ as well with the different varieties that we look at. So just all sorts of things that we can look at as we're evaluating these different grasses and different varieties. That's kind of cool. So you have all of these different tools to like figure out if it's actually doing anything because visually it could look like, yeah, they look the same, but all of yeah. these other like quantifiable tools help you like, um, give you a, a more fuller picture so absolutely absolutely and that's what we're trying to do we're trying to get the most the the fullest picture of what's going mm -hmm. on out there yeah nice okay um and i think that you already answered this Ex can you explain your findings you kind of already did that throughout yeah. so yeah so let me just share a very practical aspect of the findings with you. So, you know, we've been doing this work for years and years. And um, last year I started working with Salt Lake City, which of course is our capital city. And the water conservation manager for the city utility wanted to do, she didn't want a turf removal program. She wanted a program where she could provide residents with a better mixture of turf grass varieties to reduce water use. And so she and I worked together on that. We brought in an organization called the Turfgrass Water Conservation Alliance, which is one of our partners in the research. And we identified some different varieties and species that we could put together for Salt Lake City. What's going to work best in Salt Lake City? And so that program, she calls it the Salt Lake City Turf Trade. It launched this past summer. Um, and that was midsummer. And I think she sells the seed at cost to her residents. Um, and the first effort sold out in three weeks. The second round of seed we got, which was 5,000 pounds, sold out in 48 hours. Wow. And it's just, I have been inundated with requests for this stuff. And so we're kind of, what we're doing here in Utah is we're working to make that available to every citizen of the state. And they're going to be different mixtures depending on where you are, because the Southern part of the state obviously has a very different climate than the Northern part of the state, but we're working to develop appropriate mixtures for all the different areas. Um, and not only that, and I think this is really important, not only the seed mixture, but also educational support for what to do. Because, you know, I've kind of beat up on turf removal and I say it's not necessarily very effective, but our program wouldn't necessarily be very effective either if we didn't carefully help people in their installation of the new seed and then their management once that grass is established. Because the test site that we used in Salt Lake City all last summer only got irrigated once a week and it looked fantastic. So we want people to get the most benefit that, that they can and to reduce their water use by the absolute maximum amount possible. Hmm. So there is a high demand out there and then. Yeah. It's, yeah. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. And also that educational aspect is also really important. So. Yep. Um, yeah, because you can have all the coolest things and you, if you don't know how to use it or take care of it, then it's uh, it's not going to help you. So for exactly. Yeah. For like, let's say, I don't know, let's bring it back to cooking because that's what I love to do. Yeah. Um, but uh, you can have all of these crazy expensive ingredients, but 
if you don't know how to use any of it, then or to take care of any of your equipment, then it's it's kind of like worthless for you. But if you know how to use like a couple things and do it right really well, you could just have like, I don't know, salt and pepper and just use that correctly. And it'll take you very far. If you can, if you can take care of your equipment, it'll, it'll take care of you. So. Exactly. That's a great analogy. They're all cooking ones. Cause I, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think those are all the main ones, but we're going to have some fun questions at the end because we're coming pretty close okay. to an hour. But um, so if you could send a mass text message or email pertaining to your research, what would you send and why? Ooh. Mass text or email. Okay. Yep. So the entire world, they're going to yes. see, they're going to see that text message and you can send them yeah. whatever. Well, I'm I'm kind of going back to your turf is tough. <laughs> turf is tough. It's going to start out with turf is tough. And then it would say, get to know your grass. It's more complicated. Well, maybe not complicated. It's more because I like to take things positive, right? Mm -hmm. um, oh, I know. It would say turf is tough. Your grass can give you more than it takes. Can give you more than wow! I like that. Yeah, give you more than it takes. I mean, it makes sense. You know, it's yeah. straight to the point. It's a very yeah. resilient plant, and it does give way more. Um, like we said, all those industries, all those positive benefits. Mm -hmm. um, even psychological benefits. So yeah, no, yeah. good message. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, we touched a little bit about this. So was there a particular event or activity in your uprising, like your childhood um, that got you excited about your research? Oh, wow. Well, this is kind of funny. I think I mentioned that when, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I was studying soil science. Mm-hmm. And when I was a little kid, one of my very favorite things to do was we lived in deep South Texas and um, we lived on an orchard, a citrus orchard. <laughs> this is really getting into the nitty gritty here. Anyway, I used to spend hours and hours and hours playing in the orchard with my brother and we would just build little cities and communities out of dirt. And then we had all our little Fisher Price people in our cars and we just, and so I loved dirt. I loved soil. And so when I got into undergrad, it took a while to find that as a, as a degree option. But when I did, it was like, all the lights went off. It was like, Oh, I love this. And I, I, the only thing I can equate it to is just, I just loved playing with it as a kid. Um, and then beyond that, you know, I just wanted to do something in the field of environmental science. And so I went from soil to water, and then I went from water to plants. And that's kind of how I ended up here. Nice. Um, yeah, so I have that's, a that's really a cool answer. Yeah, and I just have sort of an unusual academic background, very, you know, three very, very different degrees. Yeah. So you started off with, wait, say that again. So you went from soil to water. Soil to water to plants, yeah. Water to plants. Oh, interesting. That that is that is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but I think that's um, that basically answers the second this uh, other question. It was, what was your favorite toy or, or activity growing up? And you kind of already uh, answered that. And yeah. why did you like it so much? And um, I think you know why did I? I think for me soil was just this this medium that could become anything like you know we made it into little cities towns mm -hmm. communities farms i mean we could make anything out of just bare soil <laughs> with mm -hmm. our little people and our little animals and our little vehicles and you could just it just let your imagination go wild you know just add a little water and you can make a mountain <laughs> mm -hmm. or a volcano or a building i mean it's just fantastic so it's basically like i've never really played minecraft but it's basically like minecraft but in real life yes know? so exactly. that's cool exactly that's cool. and you create your own little uh adventures and all that yeah stuff. that's cool yeah. yeah um 
And so what similarities does it have with the research project? And why does this uh, toy or activity bring uh, a similar spark or enjoyment to your life? Yeah, yeah I think um, that's a really good question. And I think it all kind of goes back to, you know, so there was a lot of imagination, right, with that play when I was a little kid. And I think the thing that I love about what I do now is that I can still bring that imagination to the work because this, I think any scientist might tell you this, but we basically get paid to be curious. We get paid to just be like, okay, what, what kind of work needs to happen and how am I going to do it? And it's just such a, it's such a creative process in that way. I don't know that people often think about science as being creative, but I do. I do. And I think the fact that, you know, I can sit here, you know, or be out driving or walking or at the research farm, wherever, and some kind of lightning will strike and it'll be like, oh, I need to do research on that. And if it's relevant and it can be helpful to my clientele, which is basically everybody in the state, mm -hmm. I'll have support to do it. So it's just, it's such a gratifying career. I mean, it is just, I, I couldn't ask for more. I really couldn't. I love it. Nice. That's a, that's a really good answer. That's something I'm still trying to find too. So being paid to be curious, that's, I yeah. love that. Yep. I, I do think scientists are really creative because you can't really, if you follow the same exact thing as everybody else, that's not really, you can't really solve or make any contributions to the scientific world. So you kind of have to have that creativity and that curiosity. So. Yeah. I, I tell my students that, you know, it's like, you know, here we are, right? This, the science is at this point, but your job is to take it to this point. Yeah. And then exactly. The next person will take it to that point. Right. Um, and you, you, so you build on it. I mean, that's the scientific process. Um, you know, sometimes it might go up and down and all around. It may not be a direct path, mm -hmm. but as long as we're moving the ball down the field, so to speak, you know, that's improving our lives. And I guess that's the other thing about it that I like. It's that I have a pretty direct link to people and how to improve their lives and their situations. Pretty direct. And mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people can say that. Yeah, I know. It really, it really does like connect to the people. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. Um, oh, last last question. This is just a really fun one. So this is a throwback to one of my old, my, the first podcast I ever made. Um, so if you could eat a sandwich with anybody dead or alive, who would you eat with and why? And what sandwich would it be? <laughs> it's, oh, funny. Wow. it's random. Yeah. Wow. Okay. A sandwich with anybody. Gosh. And what sandwich would it be? You could start off with a sandwich. You know, that might be a little bit easier. Okay. I, this is going to be informed by some recent travels that I've done. Okay. Because, you know, I, I, uh, can I have two people? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. There's two people then. So um, there was a man named Hans Jenny. And he is considered the father of soil science. <laughs> Um, I would have the sandwich with him, but we would also invite Carl Linnaeus. Carl Linnaeus is the scientist. He was Swedish. He came up with the scientific naming and classification system. So, you know, we have scientific names that are genus and species. Mm -hmm. um, and so those two guys together and the sandwich. Okay. I'm going to, it's not exactly a sandwich, but I recently traveled to Norway and they have, they have uh, what they call the greatest hot dog in the world. And it is absolutely fabulous. It's more like a sausage, but mm -hmm. I, that's what I want. I want to eat that hot dog, Norwegian hot dog with Hans Jenny and Carl Linnaeus. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's a, that's a good answer. Thanks. I mean, technically, a hot dog is a sandwich because it's between two okay. pieces of bread. So that is good. a that is a valid sandwich question. Good. So, 
you would just talk about like um, uh, soil science and the scientific naming. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that the reason I picked Carl Linnaeus is how, because of how important that scheme is like for naming things like that's how we talk about all of the different things we have, the different plants, the different animals. You're homo sapiens. So am I, mm-hmm. you know, uh, some of the grasses I work on, I don't know, synodon, dactylon, proa potensis. That's how we know what we're talking about. That allows us to be effective in the, the science that we do. And Hans Jenny, you know, these plants grow from the soil, right? And I would just want to know, I would talk with him about, I would ask him some of the same types of questions you're asking me, like how, what was his childhood? Like, how did he kind of, cause he came up with some really incredible um, concepts around soil science and soil development mm-hmm. that inform everything we do today related to soil. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that I would talk about with them and, I'd want to know what they think of our modern world too. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be, that'll be a really good question to ask. Yeah. Them, so. Yeah. Huh. Well, I think that's, I think there's a really good episode, but is there any last things that you want to share with anybody? I think we're close to the end. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I just, you know, I work on turf grasses, but I think, um, I think plants are amazing. And I think plants have the capacity to help us a lot with some of our current environmental challenges, some of our current climate challenges. And I just hope that people can think broadly about that, right? And and even apply it in the smallest way to their own lives. You know, even if they've got a little flower in a pot on their kitchen counter, Mm-hmm. I think I just want people to think about plants and the ways that they can help solve problems in our world. Nice. That, yeah. That's a, that's a good way to, to end it is where, so where can people find you? Is it, is there another, well, uh, your website or, Oh yeah. Yeah. I have a website I can share with you. Okay. Uh, I'll, put, I'll put that on the, on the um, description. So. Yeah. And I, I guess also um, I direct a center here at Utah State University called the Center for Water Efficient Landscaping. And I'm really fortunate to work with a number of fantastic colleagues who are working on different aspects of plant water use and irrigation technology and things like that and water conservation. So, you know, we've got, uh, we actually have a webinar series that's, you know, that's all archived on YouTube. We have a whole, whole lot of informational material we've developed in support of the citizens of our state and region. And um, yeah, that's probably it. Yeah. That's what, that's why I found out about you guys. So and I'm all for it. So yeah. Cool. Alrighty. I think that's, I think that's uh, the episode. So give us a follow on Apple and Spotify, as well as our Instagram at research showcase pod. You have all the links will be in the, in the show notes and thank you again really appreciate it